Welcome to episode 135 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast, the light pollution edition, or maybe the light, get rid of light pollution edition. <laughs> I, I'm Chris and dreamy is Sheen. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up at the night sky. And this podcast is for anyone who likes to go out under the stars. How are you this evening, Shane? I am not too bad. Yeah, yeah. Getting used to our new recording time. There we go. Yep. There we go. Yeah, me too. So we're recording on Monday evenings, usually we do it on Sunday mornings, and we're both noting that, uh, yeah, uh, energy levels can be a little bit different. I've been I've been out in the wilds for a few days, and uh, and Shane has been uh, on, on doing some other things, and so it works better for us to record at this time. Um, but yeah, if, if I've kind of been out on the land for a couple of days, then I might be a little bit tired too. So on my screen, I'm showing two lights. Do not adjust your vision, Shane. It's the same light with a different head on it. Oh, tricky, tricky. So this is the light near my house that has been changed from the old-fashioned spilling every light which way cobra head to a new almost full cutoff light. I say almost because they're not quite doing the trick as I would hope they would do. And uh, they, they will need some adjustment for me to do profitable or unprofitable astronomy from from my area. So with with that, and with a recent presentation I did for the Nature Conservancy of Canada, um, I thought we could talk about light pollution this evening. And I think we're going to put this out in 365 days of astronomy too, or maybe that's next week. Anyway, we'll, we'll see how it goes. We'll see how it goes. So light pollution, Shane, like or hate? <laughs> uh it is not a friend of mine um no. and it's not really a friend of any astronomer uh or or really like what what i always way about these light pollution presentations is you know i used to have a very selfish uh, selfish perspective on light pollution and that it ruined my astronomy yeah um but it has a way bigger impact on just nature in general. Um, all of this artificial lighting at night really upsets all sorts of other, you know, natural cycles with animals and, and insects. And, and, you know, there's a pretty big laundry list of impacts, but, um, you know, it, it's an issue. Um, and, you know, I'm probably, I don't, I haven't looked through your presentation, so I might steal some of your thunder, but you know, Go it really boils down to either too bright of a light or just a necessary light um, because, you know, or the wrong light fixture, it, it kind of spirals out of control, but um, it, it's, it's a, it's an issue in just about anywhere people live. Yeah. And it's, it's one of those things. It's sort of a funny issue because um, I kind of feel like, um, you know, everybody from an environmentalist to like fiscal conservatives, like, like everybody from all different political stripes really should be all pulling in the same direction on this one, because sort of for, for maybe people, um, that, uh, that are, that are of the, of the conservation and nature leanings, um, you know, uh, certainly less light means, um, better uh, outcomes for the natural environment, um, less light at night for maybe an individual who, who isn't, uh, into nature as much, but, uh, um, wants to see, uh, you know, greater constraints on public spending. Let's just put it that way. Right. I mean, you know, really we have lots of different individuals in our cultures and, and societies and, uh, and, and less light at night means just, just frankly, less, less wastage and less spending, even if, even if that individual, um, 
but I think, I think we all do enjoy nature to a certain extent. And I, I think we all want to see um, less waste in public spending. And I think that less light at night can, uh, can accomplish those things. Oh, absolutely. It can. For sure. So, so I, I put some definitions in here, Shane, um, you can kind of build on these or, or whatever you want, but what is light pollution? I, I think you actually probably can give me a pretty good definition without any, any of the notes that I put in my presentation. Yeah. Um, again, I, it, the way I've defined it is just artificial light, um, that, that lights up the night sky essentially, or, or leaks beyond its useful intention. Yeah. Um, you know, the definition, I'll, I'll read the first one here, just brightening of the night sky caused by streetlights and other man-made sources, uh, which has a disruptive effect on natural cycles and inhibits the observation of stars and planets. Uh, for many astronomers, light pollution has been a disaster. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's basically like the, the inefficient and unnecessary use of, uh, of light at night. And, uh, We'll, we'll dive into this a bit more. I've, I've got an image here. I think this is somewhere in Italy. Um, and uh, yeah, it just shows sort of a sprawling metropolis. But that, that could be that could be any city. That could be, um, you know, a, a small uh, city outside of Toronto. I know when I, when I fly over Southern Ontario, you see all kinds of cities like that. Even even out here, you'll see small cities uh, like that uh, that just, just are just are lit up. And when you fly over cities and, and many, many listeners will have done this, you fly over cities and you see all those lights, even when you're really high up at like 35,000 feet or whatever it is. And you look down and you see those lights, even when they're directly below you, that's wasted light. Whatever light is reaching your eye, it, it shouldn't be getting there because somebody paid for that light. And if that light is getting to you, just somebody who's randomly flying up overhead, that's a waste you know, and, and that doesn't do anybody any good, you know, other than, Hey, there's a city down there that that could be costing thousands of dollars just to provide you with that little glow to the underside of the airplane and disrupting all kinds of other things along the way. Mm-hmm. So here in Canada, I'm going to, and I, I, I kind of split this up a little bit. So in my presentation, I, I just had the bit here on uh, dark sky preserves here in Canada uh, and then I put it in a bit on the International Dark Sky Association uh, as well, because they're they're an important um, figure in, internationally on uh, on dark skies as well. Um, so here in Canada, Shane, you know you know this as well. We have three different um, dark sky type of of preservations. We have uh, the the standard dark sky preserve. And this is an area as, as we define it in the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada as an area which has no artificial lighting visible and active measures are in place to educate and promote the reduction of light pollution to the public and nearby municipalities and sky glow from beyond the borders of the preserve will, uh, will be uh, much less. And, uh, and because of these efforts and, and you, you and I work actively um, sort of at that level with the uh, with the Grasslands National Park, which is our our sort of home, our local national park here in Saskatchewan. Beautiful, um, what, I mean, I think one of the most beautiful parks that I've ever been to. Um, I had high hopes when I moved to Saskatchewan to go down there and do some astronomy. Um, the nature in the park is astounding, and it blew me away. It's one of those things where I had very high expectations. The uh, expectations could have been much higher because it it, it exceeded my expectations, both uh, in form and function. Uh, park staff down there, phenomenal too. Looking forward to spending more time with them this summer. 
Um, and then we have nocturnal preserves and you and you and I have, have worked on nocturnal preserves together. There's not as many, these nocturnal preserves are areas where artificial lighting is strictly controlled and there's active measures in place, um, uh, to educate the public on, on light pollution and partnerships with nearby municipalities. Uh, but the primary focus is, is not really on, um, active, uh, astronomical, uh, pursuits. It's really, um, primarily focused on uh, management of nighttime illumination and protecting the environment. Um, so this, this place here in Saskatchewan, which was, uh, it really was the first nocturnal preserve, um, which is old man, his back uh, down on the South end or sorry, near South end, Saskatchewan, East, East end, Saskatchewan. There's also a South end. Anyway, it's down in the very, <laughs> to, to make matters more confusing, um, East End Saskatchewan is down in the southwestern corner of Saskatchewan. <laughs> so, and, and South End is way up north. <laughs> that's right. I forgot. Yes. Yeah, south End is way up north, um, strangely enough. Uh, but in the southwest of Saskatchewan, we have a place called Old Man on His Back. And there's an interpretive center there. And it's run by the Nature Conservancy of Canada. And uh, they invited me. They invited me to volunteer. And I, I readily accepted the opportunity to to do a volunteer uh, presentation for them recently, and this this is sort of a um, a presentation which builds upon that. I really enjoy doing stuff with the Nature Conservancy of Canada because they uh, they you know they're they're an amazing organization um, for getting um, grassroots uh, initiatives off the ground and engaging people through a variety of means um, to volunteer with them. Um, I think it's really, really cool. I really like organizations like that. So I, I just did this volunteer, you know, just, just something of, of my own interest, just a way that I can uh, make a contribution. And so uh, we're kind of basing this presentation um, loosely on that. So additionally here in Canada, we have urban star parks and these, these are um, places um, where artificial lighting is strictly controlled and there's active measures in place to educate and promote the reduction of light pollution, but uh, they're in those municipalities that they're working with, not outside. And uh, they do quite a bit. I think there's Irving Nature Park over in New Brunswick is uh, is one of these. There's not as many of these. When they first came up with urban star parks, I kind of hope that every municipality in Canada, or, you know, in, in fact, there's there's other ones as well, but every municipality in Canada would come up with their own uh, urban star park. I kind of think that that would be cool, you know, but uh, that that hasn't happened. Maybe it will one day. Yeah, yeah. The International Dark Sky Association, which which I think is kind of based more or less out of the states, I could be wrong though. But they've got over like here in Canada, we have we have a couple dozen. Should have put the put the number up. And there's there's maps at rasc.ca under the Light Pollution Abatement Committee. Um, the IDA sites are international, and there's over 130. They have a few. They have five different definitions where we just have really the the three, um, but we have international dark sky communities uh, at the IDA communities that are legally organized uh, around cities and towns to adopt quality outdoor lighting ordinances. And it's really cool. I've seen some of, some of these um, and these are places you can actually go and rent like an Airbnb uh, to do astronomy at. That's, that's pretty cool. Um, There's international dark sky parks, parks that are publicly or privately owned um, and protected areas um, international dark sky reserves. Um, so they have a core zone. We kind of try to do the same thing at the RASC. Um, and they have policies in place to enhance and protect sky darkness, international dark sky sanctuaries. Um, these are the darkest ones, um, to conserve the state, uh, of, of these fragile ecosystems. Then they have urban night sky places, which are kind of like our, our urban 
star parks. So, uh, and, and we're not like, we're not in competition with the IDA or anything. Um, we just have our own kind of thing in Canada, um, which is Canadian based. And, and one of, one of the reasons for that is that we have our own internal park system here in Canada and uh, they've been a great partner. Parks Canada has been an amazing partner of, uh, of our organization for creating um, dark sky preserves. And then we have some other sort of um, Canadian centric uh, initiatives and Canada is um, a unique society. And, and so there's, there's some things that, um, that lend well to us for, for doing some of our own initiatives um, like this. So let's see, um, light pollution. It's not like, kind of like what you were saying, it's not just for astronomers, is it Shane? <laughs> no, no, there's, um, like I said, insects, animals, even humans and like, like our circadian rhythms and our ability to sleep and rest and, and, um, allow the body to do it. The, the processes that it needs to at night can be impacted by light pollution. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing. Um, you know, it all boils down to a lot of waste and cost, you know, and, and disruptions to ecology. Um, and some of this, uh, is like this slide I have here that, that we're looking at is, is based loosely on, uh, on our, our mutual friend, Rick Husiak, Richard Husiak, who's, who's really uh, uh, a light pollution crew, you know, against light pollution, a crusader against light pollution here where we live uh, and a good friend and an amazing uh, amateur astronomer on top of that. Um, but one of the things that, that he has said that has struck, that has struck me and, and there's science to back this up, uh, but he talks about just how many lux, a very small amount of increase in light, just a 1% increase in light is enough to stop um, many amphibians from reproducing. Um, and that, that's amazing just to think that that small increase in light is enough to, to stop, uh, you know, some, some animals from actually uh, procreating and, and making, you know, new copies of themselves. It's scary. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Makes you wonder what kind of impacts there could be on human health. So I kind of, I kind of listed a few of these things here. Did you want to read them off? Yeah. So for human health, uh, I kind of mentioned the circadian rhythms, but, um, you know, light at night can affect, uh, your circadian rhythm and make it abnormal. Um, and then having that happen, um, uh, it's often, or has been associated uh, with obesity, diabetes, depression, bipolar disorder, um, seasonal affective disorder, um, you know, a lot of things that, um, you know, not saying that light pollution is the cause or removal of lights is a, uh, you know, a cure, but, um, there's links there and, um, you know, certainly research, uh, has proven that, uh, light pollution can impact human health negatively. Yeah. And, uh, and those links are getting tighter and tighter, you know, they, they've linked back, um, you know, and kind of looking at the IDA and, and some of the other research that, that is out there. Um, I'm not writing a scientific paper. I, 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 I work on a scientific study and try to take a little bit of a break from that when, when I'm doing uh, these podcasts. But, um, you know, research now estimate that up to, you know, in fact, like 30% of maybe breast cancers are actually linked um, to, uh, uh, to being due to, due to light at night, uh, suppressing circadian rhythm. I mean, that is terrifying yeah. You know, and, and very, very serious, uh, even apart from the whole, you know, Hey, let's, let's have fun and go out and look at astronomy, uh, objects in the nighttime sky. Hey, that's fun. But you know, if, if there was no impact on human health beyond us, just losing a little bit of enjoyment in the night sky, when lights were lit up, 
okay, well, what's the big deal, right? Really kind of, that's what it boils down to. But there's pretty serious repercussions here on human health and the health of our loved ones um, for, for, uh, for what the impacts of light pollution are. And beyond humans, um, you look at bird strikes, you know, there's, there's a great um, initiative in Toronto here in Canada on, uh, on Lights Out Toronto. Uh, they, they were finding in, in migratory seasons, too many birds were getting killed their streets were getting littered with birds and uh, Toronto is, is there, you know, in Southern Ontario, having lived there corridor for, for migratory birds, you know, I was out this, this weekend in the wilderness here in Saskatchewan, here in Saskatchewan, we have uh, uh, more and more improved lighting ordinance. We were talking about that at the beginning. Yeah. The, the lights here, not hundred percent to my ideals, but they're definitely better gonna see if I can work with them to get some tweaks made for my own personal use. But, but in general, the lights that they're putting in here in, in Saskatchewan are IDA approved hundred percent. And, uh, and they're gonna, they're gonna help the, the wildlife, but we were sitting, we were sitting out and, uh, we could hear so many birds here. Uh, and it's just amazing. And, and to think that, um, that the birds are so negatively impacted by, by lights, you know, and in fact, you know, um, hopefully as, as the lights get replaced here and maybe some of them just get turned off, um, you know, the, the birds will, uh, will persist because a healthy ecosystem, um, for one animal is just a, a healthier ecosystem for us all, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's really, really important. So increase in atmospheric pollution. This was one thing that I stumbled across today. I was looking, I was like, okay, I kind of referenced it in the, in the previous slide, but there's, there's actually now, there's been this study, and I, I kind of got to read this bit. There's, there's been a study on the increase in atmospheric pollution. We're not talking light pollution. Atmospheric pollution is increased by light pollution. So, uh, and, and here's the bit. A study presented at the American Geophysical Union meeting in San Francisco, and, and I think this was relatively recent. I, I don't know the citation. I'm not going to do that for my podcast. I do that, you know, I, I work in that environment. Um, anyway, they found that the light pollution destroys, um, nitrate radicals, thus preventing the normal nighttime reduction of atmospheric smog produced by fumes emitted from cars and factories. The study was presented by Harold Stark from the National Oceanographic uh, and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA. And, and so they've actually found, I, I was blown away by this today when I was reading this. Um, as I was kind of updating this, this for our purposes, that pollution, air pollution, atmospheric pollution is increased by light pollution because the natural geophysical processes in the atmosphere um, break down and they no longer neutralize um, the effects of, uh, of human interaction with, with the atmosphere. That blew me away. I didn't know that. Did you know that? Had you heard this before? No, no, this is news. Yeah, I so was regular old pollution smog is made worse in places that have more light pollution than not. <laughs> Unbelievable. Had that that was news to me. Anyway, yeah, yeah. there's another good reason. You want less regular pollution, have less light pollution. So what does it look like? I, I've got some some slides here, Shane. I mean, maybe we should just get you. I mean, you're you're an amateur, you live in the city. Um, what does light pollution look like for those that might not be familiar? Well, you know, within the city, um, sometimes it looks like a little bit of a haze in the sky and that's just the, the light pollution, um, you know, 
uh, either it's unshielded light or it's bouncing off of other, like reflecting off of other surfaces, but it's basically illuminating uh, particles in the sky. So it kind of, it, it can take on the appearance of a haze. Um, if you're outside, you know, sometimes when you're at a dark site, you, you can still see like what we call a light dome uh, over top of a, a city that's in the distance. And um, one of one of the uh, other popular dark sky sites in our province is Cypress Hills Provincial Park or Interprovincial Park, actually. And uh, it's an elevated place on the prairie, but you can see light domes of cities that are hours away or, or hundreds of kilometers away. Yeah. Um, and, and it's just a soft glow on the horizon. And, um, you know, that's, that's light pollution. Um, sometimes when there's ice particles in the air, if you live in a colder climate, you can see these light pillars, uh, sometimes just shooting straight up into the sky. And, uh, you know, again, that's, uh, that's light pollution. Do you remember the first time that, that you saw light pollution and recognized it for what it, what it was? Do you remember do you remember that or, or is that just something that's sort of in the, in the background static of your upbringing? <laughs> well, it just was kind of normal. No, like, cause I grew up in a small town. So, um, in the small town, you could see the Milky way, you know, from my yeah. driveway. Um, but we lived probably, it's about a 15 minute drive into the larger city. And when you would go into the city, you can no longer see the Milky way. And it was just sort of that, yeah. that was life, you know? <laughs> yeah. I, I remember being a kid, um, maybe I was like seven or eight and, uh, and, and going out in the yard at night and, uh, and, and, you know, I wasn't into astronomy, but I was always like interested in looking up. I remember I was, I was lying. I don't know why I was doing this. I was, I was a, a dumb kid maybe, <laughs> and I was going out and I was lying in the snow and I was looking up and there was clouds and I went in, I was like, why are all the clouds so pink and orange underneath like i can't hardly even you know i can't see anything other than this this gross kind of color and and one of my parents said well that's that's the lights they're reflecting off the snow um during the winter and then they're they're going up and just bouncing off the lights and then bouncing back to you and the lights just bouncing back and forth you know it's it's a waste you know so even even those all those decades ago it, it was kind of recognized as you know but just so, sort of the inevitability of of progress, unfortunately, but in those days, it wasn't seen as anything harmful either to the ecology or I, I could be wrong, but, but it, it certainly wasn't anything that, that anybody really, I never heard anybody call it light pollution until uh, much later. When we, when we have lights though, like the traditional lights that we have, you see that bulb that hangs down. And unfortunately the result of that is that um, that light is escaping and it's going up even though like there's something on top of the light that the bulb is so large and round that the, the light is going up and that's what's, what's uh, going up at an angle and hitting the clouds. Now, of course, you've just had one light. Um, the impact is going to be localized and there'll be some, you know, regional illumination, but it won't be that big a deal. Um, but once you have dozens of lights, you're, you're basically hitting it from all angles. And then of course uh, the sky uh, it's just getting saturated from, from all angles. So, uh, lights need to be full cut off and, uh, and compliant. Um, it, you know, the, the IDA has, um, International Dark Sky Association has, has requirements, stringent requirements, and they're, they're getting more and more stringent, you know, as time and research goes on, you know, originally, I think they were like, you know, fairly bright and whatever. And now they've kind of, 
even even tone those down. But from a dark sky, when you when you get out somewhere dark, you know you can really you can really see the impact. So lights uh, lights must prevent crime, though Shane, right? Like crime rates must must be reduced, right? When there's lots of light. There's statistics to tell us otherwise, Chris. Um, well, thanks for not leaving me hanging this time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you're welcome. <laughs> so, so yeah, there's there's no evidence that um, that crime and accidents are reduced at all by lights at night. You know, beyond like some pretty minimal stuff. Um, so, lights in the end only make us feel safer. They do not actually make us safer. And uh, there's, there's quite a big push on for that uh, uh, understanding and that uh, people can go to darksky.org slash light dash pollution. Um, and there's, there's a link there for uh, lighting crime and safety. So what happens though, and I mean, you've probably seen this before, Shane, where um, at night you'll have a bright light and that creates a lot of glare and shadows. And uh, of course, um, you know, individuals can hide out in that. And I always think of this one. So um, uh, there was this building near where I was living in Ontario and it was always lit up at night and somebody went and cleared it out and they couldn't figure out how this happened um, because they had all these lights on. Um, but the fact is, is that when all these lights were on and people were driving by, nobody thought anything of it because this building was always lit up like a Christmas tree. Um but if it had been lit up and it was sort of unusual to see that lighting, then that might have raised some raised some concern. You know, I was at a place recently, a place that is usually dark, and uh, you know, I, I'm permitted to be there. And I went in and turned on the light, and then somebody showed up. They're like, "Oh, we saw a light on." Like, yeah, and they're like, "Oh, it's you. We know you. That's happy and good." Um, but that is very telling. That is very telling that in a building. Um, that shouldn't have lights on if suddenly a light is on at night. And this is exactly what happened in my situation uh, recently. Um, you know, people will take note of that and come and check on it for sure. hundred percent. But if I was in a place that is always lit up at night, someone drives by and just sees the lights on, nobody's going to care. So what are the solutions? What can be done? Well, Turn off your lights. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty easy. Yeah. Well, yeah. Like, I, I think it's like, don't use light if it's not required. Number one, um, if you do need light, um, don't use more than what's needed and ensure that um, there's proper shielding so that the light shines downwards, not sideways, not upwards. Um, those are sort of the, the rules that I live by. I don't know. I don't know if there's other things that you have to recommend. Well, I think like one of the things is to kind of be engaged with like your municipality and your power, mm -hmm. power companies and that sort of thing. Um, you know, people just shouldn't, shouldn't accept the fact that, that new lights are being put up um, local to me. Um, they put up lights, they put up larger and brighter lights above those lights so that the lights below are actually overpowered by the lights beneath. And, and we see this all the time. I think it costs about $5,000 to put up a power pole here in Canada. So they put up four or five power poles and they put up even bigger ones that cost even more money. And they, they saturated the light sensors on the ones below them so much that those ones don't even come on anymore. So even just from an economic standpoint, uh, it doesn't make any sense. Um, so it can be, can be worthwhile to make calls and let people know that uh, this is noticed. 
you spent, I think in this case, uh, $25,000 putting up lights that can't be, can't, can't, won't even illuminate because they are uh, saturated by uh, even more powerful lights that were subsequently put up. So reduction and not elimination. So, so this is that classic shot. I think it's on the idea website showing um, a bright light, all kinds of glare, all kinds of light pollution. And then, and then just local lights in that home. Right. And it, it goes back to that same thing where in, in the shot on the left, you can see the house is just so lit up um, externally um, that you can't even tell if any of the lights are really on or not, or what's going on there. And then in the other shot, you can actually see that some lights are on. Again, if you drove by that place and you knew maybe, you know, that person was out of town or something and you saw a light on, you might go and knock on the door. Right. Um, mm-hmm. But if it's all lit up there all the time, that there's no increase in safety. In fact, um, as far as crime goes, uh, it, it makes it uh, more prone uh, to crime. Um, and then the thing that I was thinking about is, you know, when it comes to all these lights around, like the city doesn't come and flood my street so that I don't have to water my lawn. And that's kind of what's happening with the lights is that they're flooding my street with light, even though like I might, might when I even want it, for example, like with my lawn, I don't even have a lawn <laughs> because I don't go dump water, um, uh, you know, on, on a parched landscape like we have here in, in Saskatchewan. Some people do, it's up to them, but um you know, the same thing goes to the lights. You know, why are we illuminating these areas where some people may want it, some people may not, but we all pay for it. And then in the end, how much do we actually need? You know, like most of the time, most of the night when these lights are on between midnight and 6am, there's nobody out walking. There's hardly anybody out driving around like in these subdivisions, you know, what, why are these lights even needed? Um, you know, is, is it just because they're looking to spin off excess power? Um, it's really strange. Like if we think about it, why are all these lights on all night when people aren't even out there doing anything? You know, it's, it's a strange, I've always thought that was a strange thing. It's a, a fear of the, a fear of the dark. Yeah. It, yeah. It's, it's just like one of those things people think it, like it makes people feel safer, but it, but it doesn't actually increase the safety. And then, like, what is, what is that good then? You know, I was taking public policy. I have a master's in public policy. I was taking um, this class and they actually raised this. They actually raised light pollution as a social good. And I had to say, well, hang on a second. What, what is the good? Well, it reduces crime. Like, no, it doesn't. Like, the, the, show, me, show me the science. There's not science that actually, um, you know, there's no study that says that light at night actually will, uh, will reduce uh, crime in the ways that that people are saying, like you know, throw up all these street lights, spills into my yard, it reduces crime. No, and this this proves that they put up these new lights recently. It's darker. No, there's there hasn't been a crime rampage. In fact, most people haven't even noticed. Right? Probably if the lights shut off at midnight and didn't come back on till six a.m., I bet you nobody notices. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like it's one of those things. So, how do dark sky preserves help? Well, preservation. And conservation. So um, when we go out to these places, we do uh, education, also serves as test cases. You know, here in Saskatchewan, they they originally put these full cutoff lights in uh, in and around the municipalities where our dark sky preserves were and are, and now they're branching out. Now I have the same lights in my backyard, about 30% brighter than they should be, but we're working on that. And uh, and, and that will hopefully, uh, you know, help 
help to decrease that overall uh, nighttime illumination. So, you know, the other thing is, you know, doesn't everybody want to see the stars? Well, I was going to talk a little bit about uh, light pollution filters in that, Shane. I didn't know if if we want to just discuss light pollution filters briefly. Uh, Yeah, I guess we can, yeah. So with small telescopes, we can actually use uh, light pollution filters and, uh, you know, how do they help us out? Well, so the, the light pollution filters or nebula filters as they're sometimes referred to as are, um, they're, they're basically a very narrow band filter, meaning they block out all kinds of light except for very selective bands. And uh, they can enhance the views of uh, some nebula. Um, but, you know, they really, in my opinion, they, there's marginal improvements within a city, like the name of a light pollution filter to me is a little misleading because it doesn't really solve the light pollution problem. Um, you know, they, they really work best under dark skies, um, for the most part. Yeah. So you can get these, these little filters that screw onto your eyepieces or diagonals. And then what they do is they only allow the, the band pass as it's called the, the light from the, the nebulas to actually pass through, but they don't really work on stars and they don't really work on galaxies, do they? No, no, no. Just, um, just emission nebula. Yeah. So for that, you need to, unfortunately, uh, uh, drive out of the city. So yeah, I looked at, looked at, uh, some definitions and that sort of thing. So there's a really good bit on the, uh, sky and telescope website by Joshua Roth, who talks about nebula filters, uh, blocking out, um, you know, the, the light that's, that's not really, um, you know, coming from the nebulas, but allows just the nebula light, um, to cut through. So, um, they're designed to, you know, basically improve, um, you know, what we can actually see, uh, from our telescopes from, uh, light polluted areas. But, um, do you find like the light pollution filters actually work as well, um, from dark skies or are they best like in light polluted areas like cities? I've never really used them under dark skies, so I'm, I'm probably not the right guy to ask on that one. Um, I've, I've really never played around too much with light pollution filters. So, so they've been like a real hobby of mine. So I have like the Oxygen 3, the H-Beta, you know, um, UHCs, got a variety of them. Um, and I find, yeah, from the city, I, I, I do find like they help, but unfortunately, like the light pollution is so bad in the cities anyway that uh, usually observing nebulas uh, is best reserved for, for when you get out to dark sites. And then when I do get out to dark sites, I find they actually work uh, much better, um, you know, with a little bit of light pollution that, that still kicks around and just the whole business of um, rejecting any kind of uh, sky glow as well. You know, the air does fluoresce a little bit. Um, and by, by removing that and by removing any sort of remnants of light pollution, especially when I'm only like 15 or 20 minutes outside the city, um, those light pollution filters uh, really, really come in handy. So for example, when you look at something like um, the Orion Nebula in winter, it goes from kind of being a small fuzzy spot to having sort of these, these large uh, arm extensions. Uh, or if you look at the Lagoon Nebula um, from a reasonably, you know, light polluted area, it goes from being something that uh, looks just like a cluster, maybe with some fuzz around it um, to really looking like, uh, like it's the star forming beautiful region that it is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Sorry, Chris, when you asked me about light pollution filters, I was thinking more along the lines of um, like the sky glow filters and that sort of oh, stuff. Oh, yeah. But, 
Um, yeah, like the UHCs, the O3s, I've, I've used quite a bit. And, and they certainly do, uh, in, in many cases, enhance what you're able to see uh, within a nebula. Um, and, uh, but, but same thing, right? Like it's, I really only use them from dark skies. Uh, to me, you know, light, light pollution really takes away a lot of the, the deep sky objects. So it's, yeah. uh, it's different observing in the city. Yeah, no, that's for sure. Good stuff. Okay. Well, with that, Shane, I think we'll wrap it up. Sounds good, Chris. Thank All you. Right. Thank you. Thank you everyone for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com.